0: All right, here we are. I am very excited for today. This has been a long time coming and I'm very happy to have uh, Dr. Michael Brown with me today to discuss uh, why Jesus is in fact the Messiah of the Old Testament. And I just first let me introduce you to my guest. Um, This is Dr. Michael Brown. He has written lots of stuff. He's got his, your PhDs in in, uh, Semitic languages, right? Yeah, near, near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University. So Semitic Languages. Yeah. There you go. And uh, he's done a lot of his work. Uh, in fact, you have a four volume series. I have it, but I can't show it to you because it's on Kindle. <laughs> but five, yeah, five volume. I'm sorry, it was four five. when I bought it. It's five now. And I do have the fifth volume. But it's on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. And allow me, before I, I let uh, Dr. Brown introduce himself, allow me to just tell you guys um, how important this is. You see, if the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus, indicates that Jesus is this expected Messiah of God, and then he shows up and he fulfills this and we can identify him. It not only shows the truth of Jesus, but the truth of God and the truth of the Bible. And it, to me, it's, it's my favorite apologetic, is fulfilled prophecy. And uh, now some of it's direct prophecy, some of it's symbolism and various types and things like that. But we're going to get into the details today of showing Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Dr. Brown, would you? is there anything you want to say by way of introducing yourself?
1: Yeah, when I came to faith, I was I was raised in a nominal Jewish home. So when I was bar mitzvahed at the age of 13 on Long Island, it was more of a social event for me than a spiritual event. Uh, I, I was a heavy drug user for a couple of years, and, and they got born again at the age of 16. So I didn't come to faith through the prophecies. I didn't come to faith through someone reasoning with me from the Hebrew Bible, because that really wasn't my point of reference. It was that I was a rebel, heavy into drugs. When I got saved... Wonderfully born again, my life changed because I'd been shooting heroin and speed and St. LSD and all this. I got transformed overnight. Uh, my father said, okay, Michael, this is great that you're off drugs, but we're Jews, we don't believe in this. So he brought me to meet the local rabbi who was fresh out of Jewish Theological Seminary. We became friends, and and I started reading the Bible more and more. It's King James Bible, you know, seventy-one, seventy-two, and I started memorizing scripture. I used to memorize 20 verses a day and was reading the Bible cover to cover and, and could hold my own you know, with anyone I was debating with. But the rabbis, they challenged me in a different way. And he would say, you know, Michael, you don't even know Hebrew. How can you tell us what to believe? So even though I knew that Jesus had genuinely changed my life, you, know, you we're, we're supposed to love God with our heart and our mind. And they raised a lot of issues that were challenging and raised valid questions. And I said, okay, God, I just want to follow you and your truth. I know I'm a Jew, and I know that you've called me to obedience to you as a Jew. I want to follow you and your truth wherever it leads. And and I, would, I started studying Hebrew in college, and then this rabbi would bring me to meet other rabbis, and, and we'd have hours of dialogue and back and forth. And I remember coming back from one of these dialogues kind of shaken by objections they had raised and issues they had raised. And I, I got on my face before God. I've been a believer for several years now and, and read the Bible cover to cover probably five times, memorized 4,000 verses or something. And I laid on my face before God and I said, God, I, I know you're real. I, I, I know as a Jew that there's something that you want from me in terms of my life. And if Jesus is the Messiah, if, if what I believe is true, then I don't care how much the Jewish community rejects me. I don't care what I suffer. I'm going to follow you. And if what I believe is wrong, and this church is wrong, and all these things are wrong, then I don't care what reproach I bear, I'm going to follow you. And and it was the most sincere I could possibly be in the presence of God. And it was during that time that once again, God brought the Messianic prophecies to me. Once again, God confirmed the truth of the Scripture. And then even when I went on to, to NYU to get my doctorate, my master's and my doctorate, I was determined as best as I could to study the text for myself in its original language and context, you know, speaking of the Hebrew Bible, and not have to rely on another scholar who said this, you know, evaluate what they say, mm-hmm. but not have to rely on it and be able to look anyone in the eye and say, okay, you bring me your challenge. And everyone I studied with was all, none of them were believers as I believed. I didn't go to Bible school. I didn't go to seminary. So I was constantly challenged all my years in school. I was challenged by the rabbis outside. I was challenged by the professors inside. And I thought, okay these are fair objections. Let me look into them. Let me evaluate them, as opposed to saying, well, I I just believe I'm going to put it aside. So the hard questions we should welcome, because we have real solid answers. And then as as a result of that, I didn't want to see other Jewish believers have to go through some of the challenges I went through. And that's where I wrote the five-volume series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, and then a a 22-hour DVD series on countering the counter-missionaries where we focus on on one uh, counter-missionary in particular, his material, and then done many, many debates with rabbis now. Uh, they're available online. Folks can watch. And i just give you this last anecdote. I was in Phoenix in 1995. I was about to debate Rabbi Emanuel Shochet, who is a well-known uh, professor of Jewish mysticism and a leading counter-missionary, a uh, you know, very learned man. And we were going to be debating in, in Arizona And a Jewish couple came up to me, probably in their 70s, and they said, We, you know, our daughter's been sharing with us about Jesus, and we really think it's true, and we're, you know, we're ready to believe. And they wanted to talk to me. I said, Well, here's what you do. I said, I'm debating this rabbi this week. I want you to come to the debate and hear both sides. And then afterwards, let's talk. In other words, I was so sure that we were on the side of truth not my debating skills. This guy was a brilliant philosopher and debater, but I was so sure we were on the side of truth. I said, I want you to hear both sides. And then, of course, they they did come to faith, thankfully, after that. So we don't have to shy from anything, be afraid of anything. We're on the side of truth. And if we'll dig and study, we'll get the great answers.
0: That's awesome. And let me me say one of the reasons why I'm so excited about your work in particular is because it's not careless and, and it it was forged in the fire, so to speak, of of um, not just conflict, but of pushback, of people pushing back against your work and the debates and the discussions and that sort of thing, so that your arguments for Jesus being the Messiah are thoughtful and nuanced. Um, brief story, I remember getting a, a, a tract that was made to hand out, and it said something like, over over 100 prophecies that prove Jesus. And so I, before I handed the tract out, I thought, I, I, I have obligation to make sure I know what I'm handing people. So I started looking up all these verses. This was years and years ago. And I looked up and I thought some of them, I thought, well, that's really good. That's really good. And others, I thought, that's a really weak verse to say that Jesus is the Messiah. Like this is not a strong case. I want a strong case for Christianity. I don't want to turn people off who decide to look under the covers of my slogans. You know, I want them to be able to vet me and like you said, and see that it's true. Uh, So your work's exciting to me because it's, it's thoughtful, it's nuanced, and it's like I said, forged in the fire, so what maybe you could start us down that path? What would you say is your some of your case for Jesus being the Messiah?
1: yeah, so I would go through the the Bible from the beginning, right so we we see with with the 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 failure of the human race with Adam and Eve, the flood with Noah, the scattering of the human race with tower of Babel. So this is Genesis one through eleven we get to Genesis twelve. God finds one man, Abram, later Abraham, and through him, through his seed, the whole world will be blessed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is a theme now that God is going to, through the seed of Abraham, bring blessing to the entire world. When we get to Genesis 49.10, we get a little bit more fine-tuning. Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. In Genesis 49.10, it speaks of a ruler who will come from Judah, and the gathering of the nations. There we have the nations again will be his. So we see now this promised king that will come through Judah, uh, through whom the whole world will be blessed and come into obedience. And then we get from there to David. So, so everything I'm saying so far, a traditional rabbi would agree with in many ways as well. And then David becomes the prototype of the Messiah. And it is now the seed of David, a descendant of David, who will bring this universal blessing to the world so passages like isaiah 11 which the traditional jewish community recognizes as messianic as do christians that the the son of david or jesse which is david's father that he will rule and reign and and there'll be uh the wolf will lie down with the lamb and there'll be the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the lord as the waters cover the seas this beatific vision was going to happen now through the messiah the son of david and, and we begin to see that that David is a prototype of the Messiah. Uh, and the New Testament takes this theme up as it happened to David, so it happens to the Messiah. We know in passages like Ezekiel 34 that the messianic king who's going to rule and reign is called David. So he will be just like David. And we see about David in the scripture that he was a king, but he also performed priestly functions at times even though the priesthood was through the, the, the tribe of, 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 uh, of Levi and the family of Aaron. So we see, even in Psalm 110, spoken about David slash the Messiah, you will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who is a priestly king. So as we begin to open this up, David, as the prototype of the Messiah, is not just a royal figure, but he is a priestly figure. In Zechariah, the sixth chapter, the high priest, Joshua, sits on a throne wearing a crown and stands as a type and symbol of the man called the branch, which is a term for the Messiah. So we see again a priestly king and this priestly king being associated with the Messiah. So this is a very, very important point because everyone accepts the royal stream. In other words, that the Messiah will be king and will rule and reign. Christians pray for this to happen at the second coming of Jesus. Jews pray for the Messiah to do this when he comes for the first time, in their view. But traditional Judaism has, by and large, missed and forgotten the priestly work of the Messiah, which is what? Priests dealt with sin. Priests made atonement. Priests interceded for the nation. They were substitutes that stood in for them. Uh, the death of the high priest had an atoning power in terms of bringing release to others. So when we now keep looking at Scripture, we're not only looking at the passages that speak about this king who rule and reign, we're also looking for the passages that speak about the servant of the Lord who will bring atonement, the servant of the Lord who will make sacrifices for sin, and when we get into the book of Isaiah, we see beginning in Isaiah 41 that Israel is called God's servant. But this is Israel in exile, blind, deaf, captive, bound. But there is another servant in the 42nd chapter who is righteous, who will be a light to the nations. Remember, this, this, this one is going to touch the nations. So he'll be a light to the nations. In Isaiah 49, it seems that he fails in his mission to regather Israel. And God says, not only will you succeed in doing that, but you'll also be a light to the nations. And then Isaiah 50, the same servant of the Lord suffers brutal treatment because of his obedience to God. (laughs) Excuse me. And then in 52.13 to 53.12, We see that this servant who will be highly exalted will suffer terribly, will be rejected by his own people, and yet he will be the sacrifice for the sins of the people. So we see this laid out, and then we also see as we examine other passages like Haggai 2 and Malachi 3 and Daniel 9, when we put these together, we see that the Messiah had to come and complete his mission before the second temple was destroyed in the year 70. So we're looking for a Jewish leader who died and rose from the dead before the year 70, who seemed to fail in his mission to Israel and yet has become a light to the nations, who was not just a king but a priest and made atonement for our sins. That's the big picture. And obviously there's only one possible candidate if Jesus Yeshua is not the Messiah of
0: Israel, Israel will never have a Messiah. Hmm. So, th- l- I want the audience to know that this is this is a different approach than probably what most of us Gentiles do when we approach the Messiah in the Old Testament. We want a proof text. This is a um, this is basically seeing the Messiah as a thematic element throughout the Old Testament and putting together a composite view of this of this Messiah, uh, when would he come, who would he be, all that kind of thing, and this was of course just a, you know, a hundred miles an hour overview of this topic, but each of those passages that were brought up can be looked at in more detail and more thoughtfully, and they they just, they they flower, in my opinion, they flower into uh, an incredibly detailed, very thoughtful, you know, careful exposition of who the Messiah is going to be. So there are some, let's, let's talk about this, one group in our audience that might be thinking, you know, this whole messiah thing's overblown. The Jews, you know, back then they weren't really thinking about a messiah that much. Um this is this is something Christians are reading into the Old Testament. Uh, what would your response to that one be?
1: Well, the first thing we know is is that there was a very fervent Jewish expectation of the messiah before Jesus came into the world. We know that there was discussion in different Jewish groups about the messiah and and who he would be. We know in the Dead Sea Scrolls there are even references to Mishchei uh, Aharon and Israel Israel or Meshichai Aharon Israel, the messiahs, plural, of Aaron and Israel. So this is before the time of Jesus. So no one is debating whether the Jewish people had a hope or expectation in a messianic figure before Jesus came into the world. Were they expecting a crucified messiah? That would be highly unlikely. Uh, were there various beliefs among the peoples about Messiah? Certainly. But what we can see clearly is that this was in the mind of God before it was in people's minds. So, for example, the term Mashiach simply means anointed one. You could speak of Ha, ha- Mashiach, the anointed high priest. Uh, you could speak of any of the kings would be anointed. Uh, you have the prophets were spiritually anointed. Isaiah 61, Ruach Adonai to the Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me. Uh, so various figures were called anointed. Even Cyrus was called anointed because he was chosen and singled out by God. And yet you can see, for example, like Psalm 2, the nations of the earth are outraged and they want to throw off the reign of God and his Mashiach. Well, who was that written about originally? I mean, David had a bit of an empire, and Solomon a bit of an empire, but this is not a worldwide thing. So whatever was spoken of there, there's something more that, 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 that's clearly at stake, something greater. Uh, in Numbers 24, you have a passage where, where Balaam foresees, I see him, but not yet. You know, he's going to rise up and, 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 and destroy the sons of, of, of Seth and things like that. Uh, you have uh, Hannah praying in 1 Samuel 2 about the Lord's anointed before there was a king, before Saul. So God is putting these things, planting them there. And my understanding is that with each earthly king failing, David did great, but then had failures. Solomon did great, but then terrible failures. And then the kingdom split. Then the northern kingdom goes into exile. Then the southern kingdom temporarily in exile. Then there's no temple. And people begin to realize, where is that anointed one? Where is that greater David that's spoken of? And the picture becomes clearer and clearer. Now, what's fascinating is when you look at rabbinic literature, so written in the centuries after Jesus, there are hundreds of verses that are taken as pointing one way or another to the Messiah. If you think that track had some odd verses in it, read the rabbinic literature where almost anything can point to the Messiah. So what the New Testament does is very much in keeping with Jewish literature of that day, sometimes it's what you call a a real proof text that Mm -hmm. this, this is the Hebrew Bible, the old Testament explicitly prophesying. And other times it's a parallel as it happened to Moses. It happened to Jesus. It happened to Israel. It happened to Jesus. As it happened to David, it happened to Jesus. Uh, You have things like that. You have, you know, poetic applications and just kind of like a, a beautifying interpretation of a verse, but you have the core prophecies that are explicit about the Messiah, aspects of his life, his death, when he would come, what he would do, that are non-negotiable. They must refer to Yeshua or, or they have no
0: fulfillment. Yeah, so let's talk about some of those some of those core prophecies and and just uh for those those of you who are interested I have a whole series on Jesus in the Old Testament. It's like 23 hours of content. <laughs> if you're interested in one in that series there's a whole study on how the word fulfilled is used in the in the Gospel of Matthew and it's used in a variety of fashions like he's suggesting there's these different sort of ways in which it's it's accessed. Um, and we talk about that in great detail. Um, but let's talk a little bit about uh, Isaiah 53. This is one of the hotly debated passages. It To me, it's an amazing passage that very clearly reveals that Jesus is, is the Messiah. Uh, now, what are some of the things that we learn in Isaiah 53? Uh, how do you see this as pointing to Jesus? Right, so it, it, the passage really begins
1: with 52.13, Hineas avdi, Words, behold, my servant will succeed or, or prosper. Now, elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, as I mentioned, my servant or a servant could refer to the nation of Israel as a whole. But we know that that can't work in Isaiah 53 because the nation as a whole is in sin, in exile, has been judged and chastised by God, and is now being redeemed in God's mercy. Whereas the servant of Isaiah 53 is entirely righteous And has not suffered for his own sins, but for the sins of others. Uh, Some would argue that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 is the righteous remnant within Israel. And the righteous remnant in exile was was suffering because of the sins of of the nation as a whole. And the, the, the pagan nations, where they were, were mistreating them. Yes, but it also says, And at the cost of his wounds, there's healing for us. The suffering of the righteous remnant did not bring healing to the nations. So it can't refer to the nation as a whole or the righteous remnant. It can only refer to this individual servant, the Messiah. So we see first that he will be highly exalted. Uh, The language uh, in terms of speaking of human beings is, is unique in Isaiah to be that highly exalted. It's parallel language to what you see in Isaiah 6, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The servant will be that highly exalted, but only after severe disfigurement and suffering, as a result of which this shocking revelation will come to the nations as to who he is. And then the question begins in the 53.1, who's believed our report? Uh, Again, the traditional Jewish view would be this is the nations of the world saying, who's believed our report about Israel? We thought Israel was forsaken by God. We didn't realize Israel was righteous and suffering for our sins. But again, that doesn't work. Contextually, historically, that doesn't work. If Israel was righteous, Israel would have been the head, not the tail. Israel would not have been in exile in Babylon or Assyria. So this is the nation of Israel speaking about this one that was despised, not seen, to have, you know, any special background. You know, the New Testament emphasizes, you know, from Galilee. It's like, what? are you kidding me? The Messiah comes from Galilee? What's the little obscure villages there? No way. So he grows up like a root out of a dry ground, nothing special in, in that regard. And then in the midst of his suffering, we misjudge it. We think he's suffering for his sin. We, see, we think he's being rejected for his sin, whereas actually for our sins, he was dying, he was bruised. And, and and then the beautiful verse right in the middle of the chapter in verse 6 begins and ends with the Hebrew word kulanu, all of us, all of us like sheep went astray, each one turned to his way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. Mm-hmm. And then it details how, how, how he's taken unjustly, uh, how he's silent before uh, his accusers, you know, those that are going to kill him. It even speaks of his, you know, his, his burial, you know, appointed, he's with the... Uh, with, wicked, but he ends up with the rich in his death. I mean, it's it's so interesting. Uh, and then that he will be bruised by the Lord, and yet he will make many righteous. He's even called my righteous servant. It's an extraordinary passage, the idea of vicarious atonement. Substitutionary atonement is taught more clearly there than anywhere else, even in the New Testament. That That's where the Gospels preach most clearly. And yeah. it's one of these extraordinary passages, Mike, that Many of us as Jewish believers had the same experience when we showed it to our fathers. Uh, I showed it to my father, other Jewish believers, when they got saved. It's like, Dad, look at this. You know, we discovered the passage, or we, like, heard about it. There was this amazing passage. We discovered it. Our dad's get mad. One of my friends said, Dad, someone changed it. I, that's not the—and he goes, Dad, this is the Bible I got when I was born. Someone changed it. Others said, I don't want to hear the New Testament. I just want our Bible. It, it's, it's so extraordinarily clear and powerful, the way it's laid out. And the objections to it, you know, they just fall by the wayside. The micro, the macro objections just fall by the wayside.
0: Yeah, it seems clear. This is a, this, it's a righteous servant suffering for everyone else. Um, he, that, I like the phrase in Isaiah 53 that he is going to be an offering for guilt or a guilt offering because this, this ties in, as I was studying, ties into um, concepts in the Levitical law in the, in the sacrifices. Um, in fact, the only other people to be bearing guilt in scripture that I'm aware of is the high priest, you know, the priests or, um, Ezekiel in particular, he's said to bear guilt. That's the only people that's used of. And him, he himself is an incredible type of Christ in my opinion. And he's a, he's a priest as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so yeah. Ezekiel is, is engaging in priestly ministry. Uh, exactly. The, the high priest would bear on his shoulders uh, you know, carry the names of the children of Israel and bear the sin and iniquity. So Messiah does it in a very real way. He becomes an offering for sin and Asham, which in Leviticus could could refer to intentional sins as well as unintentional sins, which makes it unique in that regard. And yet, even though the cumulative language clearly speaks of him dying, as being bruised, as being smitten, cut off from the land of the living. Verse after verse, when you put them together, they clearly speak of him as dying, yet he will continue to live. He will see, uh, see life. He will, he will, his days will be prolonged. Uh, that speaks of resurrection as mm-hmm. well. Uh, yeah. So, again, the, the, if you could uh, – one of my friends uh, in New York City, Mitch Glazer, with Chosen People, did a massive campaign years ago, uh, an Isaiah 53 campaign, They got a website, they wrote a book, Isaiah 53 Explained, uh, and and they put up passages uh, in front of the Lincoln Tunnel coming in, coming out, so millions of people every day would see this, and it was either just a question, you know, who died for our sins, Isaiah 53, or just a verse from there. And then they took out a full-page ad in the New York Times containing just the text of Isaiah 53 in a traditional Jewish translation, that was it no commentary nothing just that text knowing the power of the gospel through that word
0: yes it is that powerful this is if you have one text that you want to share with somebody about Jesus fulfilling prophecy i think the easiest one to go to is isaiah 53 in my opinion and and you're saying especially if they have a jewish background because the um the things that the passage is saying stand out even even more easily when they have that background right Absolutely. So there's another kind of a sister passage, sort of, which is uh, Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, I, I think, is underrated, <laughs> very underrated amongst people, even Christians, who um, they, they think Psalm 22 basically says, they pierce my hands and my feet. Like that to them is the most, just about all the Psalm has in it and haven't studied it carefully. Um, could you walk us through some of the indicators in Psalm 22? Like how, did, how is it connected to the Messiah? And what are some of the elements in the Psalm that you would point out?
1: Right. So you referenced Matthew's Gospel in particular, speaking of fulfill, so the Greek ra'o what does it mean that Jesus fulfills what's written in, in the Psalms? He fulfills what's written in the Torah. So Psalm 22 is the psalm of a righteous sufferer. It's not a prophecy saying, one day this will happen, this person will do this or that. Rather, it's it's a psalmist crying out, Eli, Eli, lama Zavtani! my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and this, this psalmist is brought into the jaws of death, but then is miraculously delivered. And his deliverance is so great that it brings praise to God to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting that some of the traditional Jewish commentaries recognize there's more going on with this psalm because they say it's a picture of the children of Israel through history. In other words, you don't have anywhere in the life of David where he quite lives through what's described there. You don't really have a candidate in the Bible, so you have to take it as someone wrote it in the midst of great anguish and pain, delivered by God in in poetic speech with even hyperbole, but it finds its fulfillment, its literal truth in the perfectly righteous one. So the, the book of Psalms is, is, is a prefiguring of the suffering of Israel and the suffering of the righteous and things like that. And it ultimately points to the, the suffering and victory of the Messiah. So some of the things that are significant in the language, uh, the, the detailed suffering uh, would, would speak very well of someone being crucified. And not just the controversial, they pierced my hands and feet, but, you know, it's kind of someone stretched and they can see all their bones and everyone's gazing at them. Of course, crucifixion didn't exist at that time. From what we know, it was developed some centuries later by the Persians and then uh, the Greeks learned from the Persians and the Romans from the Greeks. So even that description there that seems to fit so well um, would not have been something contemporary. And, And then... As the psalm develops, the deliverance is so great that ultimately praise comes to God from the ends of the earth. So who was, tell me what Jew was in the jaws of death, uh, suffering in a way that is on public display, and then supernaturally delivered to the point that praise comes to God from all the earth. What Jew better than Jesus? Now, we're often told that the New Testament has changed the meaning of things, and it, it mistranslates the Hebrew and says, they pierced my hands and my feet. Well, interestingly, even though the New Testament quotes Psalm 22, it doesn't quote that actual verse. Mm-hmm. So the question is, how did we come up with that translation in our English Bibles? And the answer is, it's all, it's all a Jewish issue. Uh, Psalm 22, uh, translated in the Septuagint, so a couple hundred years before Jesus, uh, renders the words, davra glai. Uh, that, that's what we have in our current text, it renders that with they pierced my hands and feet. Uh, Qumran scroll, so Sea scroll from Nachal Hever, so one of the later Sea scrolls, but still uh, witness to an ancient text, reads Karu, uh, which would be they dug through or they bore through. And then there are about a dozen Masoretic manuscripts, so the traditional uh, Hebrew scribes that pass the text on they have a number of texts that read either Ka'aru with an Aleph or just Ka'aru without it. And the best understanding would be is dug through, bore through. So this is simply a Jewish issue. The oldest Jewish translation, the oldest Jewish manuscript, uh, and, and some of the Masoretic texts read that. If you just read it as it is in the Hebrew, something's missing. Karia Darvagla means literally like a lion, my hands and my feet. What does Rashi, foremost medieval Jewish commentator, say? He says, like a lion, they mauled my hands and feet. So that works perfectly well for crucifixion, too. So this is a marvelous psalm depicting the ideal righteous sufferer delivered from the jaws of death to the international glory of God. And rightly so, Jesus draws our attention to it, crying out Aramaic, uh, which would have been the you know the most commonly spoken language then, quiet, crying out Psalm twenty two one in Aramaic on the cross, saying, "Look at this psalm. This is what's happening right now."
0: Yeah, I <clears throat> I love Psalm twenty two, and the more I've studied it, the more I loved it. Um, and I just don't want anyone to miss the point you brought up earlier, which is this psalm not only gives us a description that fits very well the crucifixion of Jesus. That's not only the case, um, even and even if we uh, yield. On the debate over pierced, it doesn't actually take away the fit to the to the cross that this psalm gives us. But we have good reason not to yield. It seems like we have good support for pierced hands and feet. But in addition to that, it not only gives us that; it gives us the impact of this event. That the event described in Psalm 22 causes Gentile nations around the world to turn to to the Lord of Israel, to the God of Israel. Yep. And yep. I'm like, I'm like, if your mind's not blown. By the reality that this 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 nobody Jew in the first century, you know he 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 had no support, no endorsement from from the leaders of the time or from the politics of the time. He ran no army or no military. He's most famous for being crucified, right? He seems to have risen from the dead. The eyewitness accounts and the testimonies and the historical you know evidence seems to support this conclusion, and he has caused Gentiles around the world to worship the God of Israel. Psalm twenty two. It's hard to argue. That it doesn't fit Jesus. It's re- I don't really know if it- can you think of maybe the strongest argument against Psalm twenty two that you've heard? I mean, just the argument that it's not
1: prophecy, but we yeah we understand this is God's Bible and Messiah's Bible, and He's fulfilling it. He's He's living it out. Uh, he's the one that it wasn't fulfilled until He lived it out. You know that that's the reality. Um, yeah. Some would try to argue that, well, it doesn't literally say he's going to die. He's delivered before death. But he's, he, e- either way, if you say he's delivered from death, it makes it even more dramatic, not less dramatic. That, that's a, it would be one thing if the psalm said he's going to die and rise from the dead, and he actually got delivered before that. But here, delivered from the jaws of death after death is all the more dramatic, uh, normally, the, the whole battle ends up about they pierced my hands and feet. Again, it's that's, that's not even a battle, I need to have. Like I said, number yeah. one, it's an internal issue about Jewish manuscripts and, and, and Hebrew words. Um, and number two, uh, uh, like a lion, my hands and feet, does that mean like a lion they were licking? Licking my hands and feet, you know. We know so lions it's, it's just like violent, licking people. <laughs> yeah, it's it is a violent, you know, dog. An assembly of the wicked dogs have come past me. That it's a mm-hmm. violent assault on on him, and specifically mentioning hands and feet. Mm-hmm. Look, there there is even uh, a, a homiletical series called uh, Pasikta Rabati uh, from or around the eighth ninth century of this era, and it has some extended passages about the suffering Messiah and. And, and in heaven suffering and carrying the weight and burden of, of, of Israel's sins. And it even quotes from Psalm 22 about the suffering Messiah there in a traditional Jewish text. It's it's, it's a compelling, powerful text for sure. Yeah.
0: Is it, isn't that the text, if I remember right, that says that it was because of the son of David, the Messiah, that David wrote, uh, then it quotes Psalm 22, meaning that they were yeah, interpreting yeah. it. They were saying this is about the son of David, the Messiah. And to bolster this, we could just, just uh, quote a bunch of passages in the old testament that do indicate that this messianic figure we're talking about is the son of david. So there's there's that um you know basically psalm 22 either stands unfulf- unfulfilled or i should say having no corresponding event in reality or the crucifixion yeah. of christ as its corresponding it's, event it, in reality.
1: It's so hyperbolic, it's so exaggerated, it's so over the top mm-hmm. that it's just what's the use of it? You know, if 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 um if the reality is so far from my reality or reality of history, then what's the use of, of poetry on that level? And if you say, no, it's a picture of the nation of Israel through history, there's not a hint of that in the text. Not, mm-hmm. not the slightest hint of it uh, through the text whatsoever. And and on that level, it still hasn't happened.
0: Yeah, yeah, good stuff. So. Um, I, I want you guys to know how to get a hold of Dr. Michael Brown's stuff before we continue, and we're going to be going to your guys' questions pretty soon as well from the live chat. You've been piling them in there, even though I forgot to tell you to, but you know the drill, because this is what we do. So uh but uh, you can get Dr. Brown's stuff. His YouTube channel is actually linked in the video description here. I recommend checking out his content. I, I think my favorite stuff that you do is is the um is the stuff, you know, the messianic stuff and your and your your uh your thoroughly Jewish Thursdays, that kind of stuff that you do, I really enjoy. Um, as well as just how encouraging you are. Uh, and now, right now, with all the stuff that's going on in the world, it's good to have encouraging Christian voices in our lives. So I think that's a good thing. We don't agree on everything, but if if you think that we all have to agree on everything, you won't have very many people to talk to in life. That's the reality. <laughs> hey, hey, listen, my, my wife,
1: Nancy, and I have been married uh, this past Saturday. We celebrated 44 years of marriage. And we don't agree on everything. So uh, if you can have a successful marriage of for 44 years without agreeing on everything. Uh, but look, you know, there's a fundamental union that we have in the Lord as brothers and mm-hmm. sisters. They're fundamental truths that are non-negotiable. And, and I think a lot of times that we have exaggerated pictures of one another. We don't get to really know each other, understand each other. So uh, let people know the truth. You know, uh, I know with you, you're very candid and open. The same with me. What you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'll see. I, I don't see a lot of the stuff that the hypercritics say and things like that. And, and my team will send them to me. You know, just because we get attacked by the second from from every quarter, and, and we just kind of file the things away. Yeah. But you know, this thing, well, Brown doesn't tell the truth, or he just obfuscates. Like, ask me. So I'm very, very happy. I get in trouble day and night for speaking what I believe. But let's get to know each other. My my concern, Mike is if if someone demonizes you there's so much good that you're doing there's so much material that you have that could help people that okay so they don't just they don't agree with this one point that you make but you've got mm-hmm. all this stuff you could help them with and that's why we're doing this we're doing yeah. this to help others so that's what grieves was like okay so I'm charismatic you're not no problem you're a Calvinist. I'm Arminian. No problem. Can, can I help you with this Jewish apologetic stuff? Can no. I help you deal with the culture wars? Can I just help you in, you know, biblical scholarship in general? So let sure, us yeah. serve you. Let, yeah. Get to
0: know each other. Let us serve you. That, that's why we're here. Take us like a salad bar, man. To take what helps you. <laughs> we don't care. Yeah, we, we only, only have healthy
1: stuff on our salad bars. So yeah. Only healthy stuff we're yeah. serving.
0: Yeah, so... um uh, with uh, right now we're actually in the middle of a contest. This is actually see, this is a very unwise thing for me to have you on my channel right now because I think it's Friday. I looked. I think Friday, me and you are going up against each other again. Uh, last year there was this ap- apologetics March Madness tournament on Twitter, and it kind of blew up uh, when a few of us sort of like, you know, threw attention at it. And it was David Wood, you, and myself, I think, who kind of pushed the most attention towards it. And uh, last year you beat me. Oh, <laughs> this quarter slows what's that but, but listen I,
1: it, okay so i didn't know the thing was happening right and and then i spotted that i was up against somebody and there were votes, you know like march madness like brackets and who's going to get in and and uh i thought oh what is this so i, I just like retweeted it for fun mm-hmm. and then so so i i won that round and then the next round was Ravi zacharias i thought well, that's, that's it for me i mean robbie's amazing and everybody knows Ravi. So just for fun, though, I mean, I thought, this is cool. People are getting to find out about apologists and things. So just purely Mm -hmm. for fun, I mentioned it to some of my staff, and and one of our guys is brilliant with memes. So next thing, he's got my head and Robbie's head on the head of, of, of bodies of heavyweight boxers, and we're fighting each other. And this is like Twenty minutes to go before the vote goes, and I got you know a big following on Facebook. So we posted it. Suddenly at the end, I passed Robbie. I thought this is crazy. Then, then I had to beat William Lane Craig, then Jay <laughs> Warner Wallace beat all of them, and then it was you. And then it, we were like neck and neck to the second. I mean, you put out your videos, and then I, know, I put out yeah. my video. We and had then a lot. It, of it fun. ended up and ended up, and I thought first it was it was a blast. And, and there's so much pressure on our lives all the time. I thought. This is just fun, but I thought the bigger thing is a lot of people are finding out. I didn't know some of the names. I didn't know people out there, so I was getting introduced to them. I thought the more attention this gets, the better. And then I got bested. I got bested by C.S. Lewis in the finals. But now we're going. One of us is going to get knocked out. I think in the round of thirty-two. So yeah, either like way, it. if
0: it's you, if, if it's you carry it to the end man i want you to win if you get past me (laughs) i'll do my best i don't know man some of these guys got way more votes right now than we either of us had in the last one so we'll see how it goes but you know what Uh, i I haven't
1: i haven't gone to facebook yet i haven't pulled in my facebook crowd yet
0: yeah yeah i'm I'm waiting too but you know what friday me and dr brown going against each other guys vote for whoever you want we're both happy either way um i'm going to try and do my best but the truth is uh, I'm happy about drawing attention to this this contest overall because we're basically popularizing apologetics more, and that is yes, hugely valuable. Like that is Absolutely. worth it's worth us all kind of having fun with this, just to get people's names out there more who are doing work in apologetics, um, because we need that more. This is this is the time for apologetics, perhaps like never before, um, especially with with. Uh, can I can I just mention one to... thing though? Yeah,
1: one thing that's fascinating. We know Romans one sixteen to the Jew first. We know the importance of Jewish apologetics. How many names are there? Is it 256 that it started with? Is yeah, that the number? Was,
0: yeah, I think it was 256 originally. Yeah.
1: Right. And then it's 128, 64, 32. Right. Um, how many specialize in Jewish apologetics? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. One out of 256. Could it be? Huh. I wonder who you should vote for. This is, this for is his line. That's, that's Okay. That's okay. I don't know if that's uh, a
0: really responsible use of to the Jew first. (laughs) But you can go with it. (laughs) Somebody's
1: got to do it, man. Somebody's got to bring it. All
0: right. Well, um, also, let me say this. Uh, We didn't get into a lot of these objections, but I think that online – probably the loudest objections I hear uh, about Messianic prophecy, they ultimately trace back to one individual online, and it's it's Tovia Singer. And you've interacted with Tovia Singer in the past. You guys did a debate that he actually refused to allow it to be published, right?
1: We did did two debates. The first was one that neither of us were expecting. We were invited to the home of a Russian Jew under false pretenses. Uh, You know, we were each told to come and discuss other things, etc., and um, he just wanted to see how we did spontaneously. So that was like two and a half, three hours with about 20 people there. That was recorded. First time Toby and I met. So it was early 90s. Uh, and at his request, we never released the tapes. That should tell you something. Mm-hmm. He asked us. And because we didn't have like a formal signed arrangement or so on, we just had to agree. We then went on subsequently on, on Sid Roth's show. He had a a, a show that, that blanketed New York City and into New Jersey. So it was a great opportunity. So a CBN, Seven Hundred Club, sent a camera crew and the whole thing was videotaped. And uh Tovia, there was an agreement to sign, he said, Well, I'll sign it after. Afterwards he refused to sign it. And then uh we did get the audio out. And what happened was in those days it was cassette tape, and the longest tape you had was, was ninety minutes. And the whole debate with questions and callers went longer than that. So Tovia Sid and I together went over it and agreed, let's remove this call. Let's remove this so that we get it down to 90 minutes. We all did it together. The lie that has circulated since then is that we subsequently edited the debate to make Tovia look bad. Now, here's the deal. First, we, we all agreed on the few phone calls to remove uh, to make sure that we got down to 90 minutes. But we immediately posted the debate. We've always had it out and had it available. It's been on AskDrBrown.org, RealMessiah.org, our different sites for years. We always put it out as soon as there was internet. Uh, you know, we, we got the things out, always got the tapes of it out before then, gladly, mm-hmm. be- because of the truth of it. He said, what's happened since then? Tovia has refused to debate me. He said, well, you edited that tape. No, Tovia. Together, you and I and Sid removed some extraneous phone calls, and we agreed on the content. What happened was I was really praying for Tovi, reaching out to him. We would speak for hours by phone, and then he cut me off. He's refused to debate me under any circumstance in any setting for, what, over 27 years now. Mm -hmm. That should tell you something. We have a 22-hour DVD series called Countering the Counter Missionaries, which in particular – focuses on his material and demolishes the lies, the misinformation. In my five-volume series, Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus, we deal with a ton of stuff, but uh, critique some of his as well. But you have to know, that there are counter-missionaries, rabbis, that I deal with, some of them regularly, some of them daily. To this day, we've been interacting for 15, 20 years, challenging each other on text, going back, uh, asking each other questions. And, and I would not say these things about these other gentlemen. It's mm-hmm. been unfortunate that Tovia has become well-known because he's the one that's used outright deception. Uh, and, I, and if you go to askdrbrown.org and, and type in Tovia or Singer, uh, or excuse me, just our YouTube channel, uh, you'll see some things where we play his quotes and, and set the record straight, or we, we we play what he says about Daniel 9 or Matthew 24 or something else and, and completely demolish it in front of your eyes. So. Don't be moved by that, friends. There are massive, massive answers to everything. And when you have the truth, you bring it to light. I will gladly debate any rabbi, any counter-missionary in a, in a fair, neutral setting where we can both speak
0: any time, any related subject, the people that run from it that tells you something. I would happily host one of those debates on my YouTube channel if, uh, if it, was, it was desired for me to do so. <laughs> if you but, could yeah. find
1: one, man, with joy, with joy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you're if you're influenced by Toby Singer's material or especially if you're an atheist watching this and you're thinking Toby Singer's refuted all this stuff, um, you you need to hear the other side of the story um, and and realize that it's his content is not doing what he thinks it's doing. And uh, I, Dr. Brown is a great resource for that sort of thing. Um, I like what I like yeah, to and, do. Is, and let, uh,
1: let, yeah. Let me just say this real quick. Toby's good at rhetoric, but the substance isn't there. Mm. Things have been demolished. Again, their counter missionaries have interacted with, and I think we've had excellent dialogue. And I'll say, look at what they said, look at what I said, it's fair, and you can come to conclusions. Unfortunately, there's a lot of rhetoric with Tovia that seems persuasive, but it is completely without substance. And if you have any questions of any kind, you're running into it. I have a colleague that works with our ministry, PhD in Old Testament, fluent in Hebrew, Russian, and English. And if you have specific questions on any of his material, we'll show you where we refuted it point for point or we'll be happy to answer. So you can reach out to us through the website. But we are here
0: to help you with any such questions. Good, good. Awesome. And your website, uh, askdrbrown.org. Dot org. Dot org. Dot org. Got it. Yep. Okay. So we're going to go to some questions right now if that's cool with you. Perfect. Yeah. All right. So this is from uh, Susan Morales who says – Are Jews that reject Jesus but believe in God not saved and not going to heaven? Painfully, the
1: answer is yes, Uh, they are not saved. Uh, God is the judge of each individual, not me, not you. But Jews sin like everyone else. Jews need forgiveness like everyone else. And God has provided one way uh, for everyone, Jew and Gentile the gospel to the jew first and also to the gentile here's what you need to understand the audience to which yeshua came was a jewish audience he presented himself as the messiah of israel when you go through the book of acts he is preached as the messiah of israel and the jewish people are called on to repent and believe romans 2 says judgment will come first to the jew then the gentile and blessing will come first to the jew then to the gentile so If there was a way to be saved outside of the cross, then Jesus would not have had to die. Paul says in Galatians 2, if righteousness came by the law, then Messiah died in vain. So I would love to think that some of these rabbis I know, kindly men, very devoted, big families, God-fearing, following the traditions, I'd love to think they had another way in, but if they did, then the whole messianic claim of Jesus goes out the window. So That's why Paul prayed with a broken heart, Romans 9, for the salvation of his people.
0: Yeah, amen. Uh, okay, this question is from Dakota France, who says, um, who introduced sin into the world? Uh, Satan, Adam and Eve, God? Well, certainly uh, Adam and Eve
1: sin and their guilt is, is what uh, actuates things into the world. Certainly Satan comes to tempt. God presents the possibility but there is no evil within God himself. So it depends what you mean by introduced. It's it's a fine question, of course, mm-hmm. as as was the first question. Uh you could say that God gives the possibility for obedience, disobedience. Satan presents the temptation, but it's it's Eve and then Adam who actually introduced sin by willfully disobeying.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that at least my view on it would be that Adam and Eve introduced sin into the human world so to speak Satan he yes. sinned before they did but that didn't introduce it into the human world when Paul's talking about the effects of sin in the fall it's unrelated right. to exactly. Satan's issues um, exactly um, okay so this says uh, this is from I'm not Wyatt who is obviously not Wyatt um, uh, he says I'm a Christian but can you explain the passage from the Old Testament that says Jesus would die for our sin uh, well, I think that that must what have come t- in early because <laughs> we covered that. that okay. must have been, yeah, I think we covered that. That must have been from the beginning of the stream because Isaiah 53, we talked about that. That definitely he's the sin bearer. He's the, he's the uh, guilt offering. These are like Levitical law terms. Jesus died for our sins. It's really pretty strong there. Uh, let's see. We've got C.C. Um, Carter who says, in Exodus 3.14, does it say the same thing in Hebrew as it does in English?
1: Yeah, so the question is, what English translation are you reading from? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if, if you just look, I mean, there are a multitude of different ways to potentially translate it. Mm-hmm. Um, Here's the but, ESV. Um, i put it on screen there. Yeah, so, I, I mean, most of our English translations, I, I am who I, who I am. Some say I am that I am. Uh, the Hebrew, Eheyeh, Asher, Eheyeh, it could potentially be translated, I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be or I am who I am, or I am that I am, or even potentially uh, I am who I will be, which is less likely. Uh, But the Hebrew, eheyeh, asher, eheyeh. So the asher is the that part or the who part, Uh, and then I am is eheyeh. So it's somewhat cryptic, uh, and it's meant to be somewhat cryptic, uh, but as you go on, it is clearly God saying, I will be with you. And Ehiyeh is from the root Hayah uh, to be, and then it is from that root that we also get the name Yahweh, which it derives from that, could well be mean the one who brings things into being. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, look, we do our best in translation to convey the meaning of one language into another, but it's difficult to do it always in a perfectly consistent way because of differences within languages. Uh, but the vast majority of English translations do understand it to mean I am who I am. And that, you know, that would be my way of, of most likely translating it.
0: Right on. Great. <clears throat> okay, here's a question from Solideo Gloria, who says, What are the passages in the Old Testament that tell us of the Christ coming twice? Which I think is a very interesting question.
1: Yeah, so uh, Isaiah fifty-two thirteen through 15 speaks of him being highly exalted but first, suffering terribly. So, at the least, we see two phases of his coming. That's one thing. Uh, then we see Zechariah nine nine that he'll come meek and lowly, riding on a donkey. And then we see Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen that'll come in the clouds of heaven. It's interesting that in the in the Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin ninety six B and following, it, it presents the two pictures. Will he come riding on a donkey? Will he come in the clouds of heaven? And the answer is, if we're worthy, he'll come in the clouds of heaven. If we're unworthy, he'll come riding on a donkey. Whereas the Hebrew Scriptures present both. Mm -hmm. So the better argument would be that two different things are presented. Or speaking of his birth, you know, birth in Bethlehem or Isaiah 9, 6, that a child is born to us. So there's a physical birth, and yet you have other passages like Daniel 7 coming in the clouds of heaven. Or even Psalm 110, that you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, so you have an earthly ministry, but then sit at my right hand until I make Mm -hmm. uh, your enemies a footstool for your feet. So there is the, and that's the most quoted Psalm uh, in the New Testament, Psalm 110. So you're going to have a period of exaltation and then the finale. So it's something that we put together based on all the data. Mm-hmm. The first uh, passages I, I referenced briefly earlier, Haggai 2, Malachi 3, Daniel 9, from which we understand the Messiah had to come before the second temple was destroyed. The glory of the second temple had to be greater than the glory of the first. The Lord himself had to visit the temple. Uh, the Messiah needed to, uh, to make atonement for our sin uh, and die before the second temple was destroyed. So that gives us a time frame for that. And then we have coming in the clouds, coming in power. So we don't know how long the gap is in between. Mm-hmm. But there are two distinct phases of his work, one born in an
0: earthly way, coming meek and lowly, the other coming in the clouds with authority. So I'm I'm teaching through the Gospel of Mark right now, verse by verse, and one of the things I've noticed in the middle of Mark, uh, Mark uh, 8 and 9 in particular, and continuing into Mark 10, is that Jesus seems to be working really hard to show them the difference between his first and second coming because they weren't expecting it. And so he kind of makes his case, and he's like, how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things? You know, and he's he's like reasoning with them about these different issues. He talks about you know their their role in leadership will be as servants. They're thinking it's it, that the the coming kingdom is now in a different sense than which it's about to come. And so this is this is not um, it's it's all the pieces are in place in the Old Testament, but it's not abundantly obvious to everyone who reads it. Um, and that's okay. I, I would say that the uh, messiahship of Jesus is is clear in especially in hindsight, right. when you see him fulfill it. And his right. first and, and second that, coming was a, a, was something that is a puzzle to put together when you just, like what you're doing, you're grabbing all these things that says about the Messiah and saying, these make a lot of sense if there's two comings, you know? Yeah.
1: But, but let's just look in general. This is the way prophecy unfolds. Let's mm. just look at Christians waiting for the return of Jesus, how many different views there are on specifics, and then... Uh, the question of of how long, and is it going to come in our generation, or etc. When he when it is all fulfilled, then it's undeniably clear. Hmm. So in this case, with the first coming, it's all fulfilled. He rises now. That's the big issue. The big issue was not so much that the Jewish leaders rejected him and turned him over to the Romans to crucify him, because Peter says in Acts three, you acted in ignorance right you you didn't understand what you were doing now that he's risen now that can we we can look back and see the whole glorious picture aha there it is and you see if if god just laid out uh history in advance that's what prophecy was it was history in advance just picture that with a sports season you know in advance the the result of every game and the, you know you can't have normal life so there are certain obscurities in the prophecies until they come to pass, and when they come to pass, now you see God has laid them out. And if we need to know in advance, then God will, as it's unfolding, we'll see it and we can respond accordingly.
0: Hmm. All right, here's a question for, um, <clears throat> for you uh, from A.J. Bernard. He says, can a Christian be Torah observant and still be a Christian believing in salvation by faith alone through grace alone? Does Torah observance nullify faith? This is speaking of uh, uh, if by, a non, they're not, uh, Jewish. Yeah. but
1: Either way, Jewish or either Jewish or Gentile, but let's mm-hmm. just, uh, answer in terms of a Gentile. You are perfectly free to observe whatever the Torah is observable. In other words, if you want to observe the dietary laws, you're free to do that. If you want to keep the biblical feasts and celebrate those rather than the later Christian calendar, perfectly free to do that. Um, on the other hand, there, if, if there was a temple standing and you were going to offer sacrifices, that's something you don't want to be doing. Uh, if you have a disobedient, rebellious teenager that refuses to repent, you don't stone him to death. Uh, but if you mean that, if you say, hey, I don't see anywhere where the New Testament changes the Sabbath, and I think the Ten Commandments are important, so I'm Sabbath observant, great, wonderful. There's, in other words, there's, there's no command against that you are free in the Messiah to do these things. If, however, you thought that this was required, if you judged others for non-observance, then you're starting to get into a dangerous area, and it can very quickly lead to elitism, it can quickly lead to legalism, or even ultimately a justification by works, which we
0: all agree is heretical. Hmm. Yeah. I have a whole series of videos on on the Hebrew Roots Movement, which this is related to. It's not the same thing, but it's related to um, that are yeah, and, and uh, look,
1: uh, on the one hand, the
0: church has so far strayed from
1: its biblical historic Jewish roots that, you know, Easter and Passover are two separate holidays. I mean, how in the world did that happen? I and mean, we, we know how it happened, and some yeah. of it was anti-Semitism under Constantine, etc. Uh, that the idea that the New Testament mandates a Sunday Sabbath is actually not true. Uh, so things have swung so far that when you have a Messianic Jew— Part of a messianic congregation and celebrating the death and resurrection of messiah within the passover season and celebrating saturday as the sabbath as as paul and john and others would have you know the church looks at them like they're crazy so yeah. it's swung you know that far in the wrong direction on the other hand generally speaking when i see christians especially gentile christians and torah observance becomes central for them it often means they've taken their eyes off jesus And it can often lead to uh, some real serious error like the Hebrew Roots Movement.
0: Yeah, that's a good word, man. And ideally, would you agree with this that um, Torah observance versus not shouldn't actually be a divisive issue in the body of Christ? We should be able to fellowship across those lines either way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Unless it's emphasized the wrong way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if it's just a matter of personal conviction or like, look, Mm -hmm. I know Chris is saying... There must have been some reason God gave the dietary law. So I know it's got nothing to do with my sanctification or my salvation, but I just, I, if he said it's unclean, I, okay, fine. Am I going to tell you, you no, know, go eat pig? You need to eat pig? You know? mm-hmm. No, of course not. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those yeah. should not be issues whatsoever, especially 1 Corinthians 7, and Paul says to the Corinthians, Were you called, meaning saved, circumcised, don't become uncircumcised? Were mm-hmm. you called uncircumcised, don't become circumcised. Just like a man is not a woman, a woman is not a man, and yet we're equal in Jesus. In that sense, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. We're exactly equal, equal heirs of salvation, saved through the same blood, and yet we have our distinctives.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, how how much time have you got left? Because I want to know how many questions I can give you here. Well, let's let's do rapid fire. All right, let's try to do rapid fire here. Um, How does Dr. Brown feel about the Noahide laws? Okay, so (laughs) there is a myth. (laughs) there is a
1: myth a myth myth <clears throat> that Jews i see you i see you encounter over. this question a
0: lot <laughs>
1: gosh i didn't even know okay so noahide laws i never heard of them growing up cuz i wasn't in a religious jewish home once mm. i was saved i was talking to these rabbis they said look the gentiles the goyim they have the noahide laws so the rabbis from genesis 2 and genesis 9 derive by kind of rabbinic exegesis these these so-called seven laws of noah uh which which forbid uh idolatry forbid blasphemy uh, forbid murder adultery uh forbid eating the the limb of of a live animal a call for the establishing of courts of justice so allegedly if the gentile world lives by these then they'll be right with god uh now Do I believe in them? No, I believe in the gospel. I believe all human beings are fallen and need the gospel, so the Noahide Law is not going to save anybody. Uh, Salvation comes through the blood of the Messiah for Jew or Gentile, period, end of subject. Okay. As for the contemporary myth about the Noahide Laws, it says this, that in traditional Judaism, Christians were viewed as idolaters. And, and in many cases they were, the consensus over the centuries has been that they're not. For, for me to do it as a Jew, to believe in the Trinity would be considered idolatrous. For you as a Gentile, would we, would not be considered idolatrous. Either way, the theory is this, that under the Noahide laws, those who disobey will be beheaded, and therefore there is a movement afoot to get the whole world to submit to the Noahide laws so that the world will now start beheading Christians. Well, you've got radical Muslims beheading Christians. When you've got Jews that believe in Jesus standing on street corners preaching Jesus in Israel, and they're not being beheaded. Come on, let's let's put the emphasis where it belongs. But search yeah. on my YouTube channel for Noah Hyde. I've got a, a book coming out in a September, God willing, that just focuses on contemporary Christian anti-Semitism, and I did a whole chapter on the craziness of the Noahide laws. Mm-hmm. I answered cool. the question innocently enough on the radio one day, only to find out this firestorm of people coming after me with big YouTube channels that totally believe in this stuff. Yeah. So,
0: You know anyway. what? As Christians, can we all do a little better with what Christian YouTube channels we help? <laughs> Get views and shares and stuff like that.
1: Uh, so, so, much, so much for my rapid-fire answer. But I know, right? Hit a nerve there. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll keep
0: going. Anyway, I, yeah. Okay, so uh, here's a good question um, from Beowulf: uh, What are the best messianic prophecies that highlight the divinity of the Messiah? Uh, Micah five two is my usual go to, but I'm looking for more. Any thoughts? on
1: Micah five two is is good, but it's not airtight uh, because uh, Olam can mean eternal, like God existing may Olam la olam, you know, from from uh, uh, from from everlasting to everlasting. But uh, li'olam alam or mealam can mean from everlasting or it can mean from from ancient days, so you could make a good argument for the eternal nature of the Messiah there, but it's you know there's going to be a little pushback. Uh, I would always point to isaiah nine six which in hebrews nine five that the son who 's born is called Pellio eightselgi Baravi Sar Shalom, that one of his titles is Mighty God. And then Yahweh Himself is called Mighty God in Isaiah ten twenty one, mm-hmm. uh, and that is that's legitimate everlasting Father meaning Father forever you know as Father of the people or or uh, Father of eternity. It's not calling Him the Father as opposed to the Son there, uh, but mm-hmm. that's a good passage, uh, Psalm forty five seven,
0: which let me, is a messianic. Like, let me, real quick, I just want to say um, so. Tovia Singer's response to that in Isaiah nine six is he says, "Well, Mighty God there." It's referring to Hezekiah, Hezekiah, whose name means mighty. Um, but it turns out that's not the Hebrew, as you mentioned. That's not the Hebrew that is in Isaiah 9, 6 or in other passages where it refers to
1: yeah, God. So the term El, El Gibor specifically only occurs one at a time in the Hebrew Bible. And that's Isaiah ten twenty one with reference to Yahweh. So it's quite striking that the king is called mighty God. All right. So that exact same term El Gibor is applied to Yahweh in ten twenty one, and then uh, Psalm forty five seven is a messianic uh, psalm. It's a wedding psalm. It's speaking about the king. But again, remember the Davidic king is the prototype of the of the Messiah. And it says in Hebrew, Kisa LaLamva Ed, and the most natural way to translate it is Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So even though the following verses speak of God anointing that king. He's spoken of as Elohim. So that is pointing to, again, it's a messianic psalm, so it's, it's a foretaste. It's a pointing to the Messiah who brings that to fulfillment. That's more than could be spoken about an earthly king. Mm-hmm. And then a passage like Genesis 18. If I just had to go to one extended passage, I'd go there. Mm-hmm. In Genesis 18, Yahweh appears to Abraham. It says, three men appeared. And then he has an extensive conversation with one of them who's identified as Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And at the end of Genesis 18, they go back and forth extensively as, as Abraham intercedes for Sodom and Gomorrah. And then it says when Yahweh is done, he leaves. And then Genesis 19.1, the two angels uh, come to Sodom. So you have Yahweh and two angels appearing. You say, well, how does that point to the Messiah? The fact is that, that God in the Hebrew Bible is unseen. We even have John one eighteen, no one has seen God, or 1 Timothy 6, that he dwells in unapproachable light. You have the New Testament saying no one's seen God at any, at any time, and yet he is seen. So how is he seen? It's the Son who reveals him. So what I do is I point to God's complex unity in the Hebrew Bible, how he is visible and yet invisible, how he is, he is, he is imminent and, and yet transcendent. How is it? It's because the Son makes him known. And then I put those passages together.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Do you have time for a couple more or are we, we going to have to wrap it up here? No, no. Go for it. All right. So uh, here's a question for you. Um, Dr. Brown from Christina Murphy. Why would anyone think the New Testament is anti-Semitic? And maybe you can explain why she might ask that question.
1: Yeah. So uh, many scholars say not only is Christianity anti-Semitic, but the anti-semitism goes back to the pages of the new testament which itself is anti-semitic so there would be several reasons for the charge and my book our hands are stained with blood is a real eye-opener if you've not read it it's it's painful but it's it's a necessary read we just came out with the new edition uh, last year but the first edition was in print from 92 never went out of print and it tells the tragic story of the church and the jewish people so the new testament is considered anti-semitic in several ways one, it is said that it demonizes the Jews as a people as a whole. That the Jews killed Christ. That the Jews, uh, for example, John eight forty four. You are of your father the devil. Who is Jesus talking to? The Jews are of their father the devil. Or in First Thessalonians the second chapter, uh, is Paul saying that the Jews killed the prophets and the Jews killed Jesus and the Jews are are. Uh, not pleasing to God and hostile to all men, the Jews. Uh, Matthew twenty-seven twenty-five: that the Jewish crowd said, let his blood be on us and on our children. So it's considered anti-Semitic in that the Jews as a people are blamed for the death of Jesus. The Jews for all time are blamed for the death of Jesus. The Jews are demonized as uniquely of their father, the devil. Uh, you're in California, Mike, the, the Poway synagogue shooting uh, that took place last year, John Ernest, in his manifesto, he's an Orthodox Presbyterian, in his manifesto, he explained that one of the reasons he was killing Jews was because of their guilt in killing Christ, and every Jew through history shared in that guilt. So it's based on a misinterpretation, a number of passages. If you'll just look in John's Gospel and see how much the Jews are mentioned, where, whereas Matthew or Mark or Luke might refer more to the Pharisees, John refers more to the Jews, so a, a misreading of the text, a misuse of the text has been used to attack Jews through history right through the Holocaust and to this day, but it is a
0: misuse of the text. Yeah, absolutely a misuse of the text, a horrible one. Um, well, how would you respond to someone who says, um, well, you're not really a Jew, Dr. Brown, because you believe in Jesus and people who are, believe in Jesus are Christians, so you're not a Jew.
1: Yeah, I I would first say if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, then how can I not be a Jew by believing in the Messiah of Israel and serving the God of Israel based on the testimony of the Jewish Bible? That's the first thing. The second thing, a Christian did not mean someone of another religion. It just meant a follower of Christ, and Christ is just Messiah. That's why we refer to ourselves often as Messianic Jews, because Jewish Christian sounds like an oxymoron to many. So Am I a traditional Jew? No. I reject many of the traditions of our people. Am I a Messianic Jew, a Jew who follows Jesus as the Messiah? Absolutely. Also, Jew does not only refer to religious beliefs, but ethnicity. You can have Jewish atheists. You can have non-religious Jews. You can have Jewish Buddhists. So why is it that by believing in the Jewish Messiah, I'm no longer Jewish? And by the way, if I'm rejected by the Jewish community, so be it. I'm not... Romans 2 reminds us that our praise will not be from man, but from God.
0: Okay. I think, I think this will be our last question for tonight. Um, So this is uh, Wesley Teal. He says, uh, Mr. Brown, would you go back on the Sid show today Um, as far as the Sid Roth show? Is that something, what's your response to his, his, uh, yeah,
1: let me say this. If I I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't go back on Benny Hinn's show. Uh, I, I went on with the hope of reaching his audience and just getting to know him firsthand because I heard terrible things about him and then people close to him said good things about him. I thought, well, let me just beat him. I know some things he used to teach, he doesn't teach anymore. And uh, our time together, I mean, Mike, you would have had great fellowship with him. You would have gotten into the Word and loved his excitement about the Word. The shows themselves, the content was excellent, but there's so much baggage that was associated with his ministry that I became associated with. And I went on the show the main reason I did it was to promote my hyper grace book to the TBN audience. Cause I knew he had a big TBN audience. So I pre, he was a gracious host. I appreciated him having me on very much, but he ended up not airing that one show uh, for a number of, re- he agreed with me, but he ar- didn't air it for a number of reasons. So my whole reason for going on fell through and it, it brought a, a lot of reproach with it. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, 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 thought it was a good thing to do, to reach an audience. There was too much guilt by association, but I'd be almost sit anytime. Uh, why well, I've, known, I've known Sid since 1984, and I don't know anyone that is more devoted to seeing Jewish people saved that uh, absolutely lives a very godly, disciplined life. And as long as I've known him, he's been the exact same thing. He wants to reach Jewish people with the gospel. Uh, he is an absolute committed believer, and he believes in documenting God's supernatural power. Are there guests he has on that I would not have on my radio show? Absolutely. Uh, and I don't, I'm going to follow the show carefully. But uh, I, I vouch for Sid as a man who loves the Lord. And as far as his fundamental beliefs, is an orthodox believer. I fully understand that there are guests on there who say certain things that you'll have a problem with. and uh, I, that have I have no a argument. big problem with. <laughs> I have, I have, and that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I'm just telling you, someone who's known Sid... All these decades and his work with them he loves the Lord he is a solid Bible believer some of his charismatic practices may make you uncomfortable but he holds to Orthodox doctrine uh, and he is an absolute soul if if we had the passion for souls that Sid had if we had that passion the world would look a whole lot different that being said I, I just want to say this to your audience some of you have been with me the whole time, and like, Mike Winger, thanks for bringing Dr. Brown on. This was great. And then we come to the end, it's like, if you're a friend of SIDS, then Mike Winger's a heretic. So, so listen, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go back to kind of where we started. And you judge me for me, and you judge Mike for Mike. If, if you think Mike made a mistake having me on because I'm too charismatic, so I know, judge him by his content, and then judge me by my content. And and you have to know I I go on all kinds of shows I I'm in all kinds of settings and I gladly do it if I can get a message out, uh, just like James White will go into a mosque and, and and debate a Muslim there. So that's that's my goal. And yeah, I'd gladly be on on Sid's again. But like I said, guess he has on I wouldn't have on my show. We'd have some differences <laughs> over those things.
0: Yeah, and I I think for those of us who are doing online ministry and different kind of content like this we have to wrestle with these questions you know like where do I draw my lines on who I will um, partner with versus who I will simply join for say an interview or for just to kind of get the message out and I want to draw that line as wide as I can but without compromising and of course no matter what I do I'm going to get flack from some people but I think that's the minority I think most people don't care (laughs) and they see that that you're not endorsing somebody's every, everything they believe. I mean, there is one YouTube channel who thinks, uh, who's done a thing on you, Service Christie, right? And he did a thing on you. You invited him to come onto your show uh, to talk about it, which I think he seems to have ignored. At any rate, but you there know, are people who do guilt by association. yeah. yeah.
1: And I, did, I didn't know who this gentleman was. And it's a big church out there. I'm not saying it in a negative way. I just didn't know who he was. And again, I get attacked daily, by the hour, by the minute. From, from every side, from, from atheists, from radical Muslims, from traditional Jews, from believers within the body to hypercritics that you wonder where they stand. And, but by the moment, literally, we, as, as we've been on with you, if I go over to my YouTube channel or Facebook page, you know, we'll have been attacked for something. So I had no idea who this gentleman was, and it may be very sincere and may really want to please the Lord. And remember, I've written whole books critiquing the charismatic movement, of which I'm a part. I wrote the book, Whatever Happened to the Power of God. I wrote the book, Playing with Holy Fire. I wrote the book, Hyper Grace. So I'm, I'm constantly calling out issues within our own movement. But when I went and saw who he had critiqued, it's like it was a who's who's list. You know, Robbie Zacharias was on there. Carter Collin, pastor of Times Square Church. Francis Chan. It was one after another. I thought, oh, praise God. It's an honor to get critiqued by this brother. You know, it puts you in, in, in good shape. And that's what's really interesting, that there is a – A hypercriticism, which kind of devours itself. And, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, D.L. Moody once met a woman, and she was critical of the way he, he did evangelism. So he said to her, well, how do you do it? She said, well, I don't. And he said, well, I prefer my way of doing it to your way of not doing it. So when I see someone who loves Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, there are they hold to all the orthodox foundations of the faith. They love the Word. They love souls. They live godly lives. They're giving themselves sacrificially on the mission field to reach the lost, but there's a video of them shaking. It's like, how could that be God? It's like, look at the millions of people they've reached. Look, look at the people they've, they've given their lives to touch. What do you think Jesus is looking at? What do you think he's majoring on? So if, if the foundations are, are sound, and this person is leading a godly life, I just look for the fruit they produce, and I rejoice. And if it's some of my critical friends producing good fruit, go for it, man. Bless you. I'm cheering you on. But let's not tear each other down. Let's lift up Jesus. Let's correct error. But let's do it in a way where where the love of God comes out through us.
0: Amen. Yeah. Let's divide on the gospel. Absolutely. The gospel is an issue we will never compromise, but there's a lot of other in-house discussions we can still hold hands to some degree uh, and have. So, yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Brown, for joining me. guys, we're going to sign off on the live stream and I will try to have more content coming to you as soon as I can. I think I'm going to go live um, on Friday in sometime in the middle of the afternoon. I'll put it up on my YouTube channel if you guys are interested in joining for that. Probably just a QA. and a um, And thank you so much. Again, check out Dr. Brown's content. Um, he has tons of free stuff online uh, on his YouTube channels linked below or askdrbrown.org. Yep, that's it. Okay, I'm trying to remember the dot, yeah. (laughs) All right, thank you. God bless you. God bless. Thanks for having me on, Mike, my joy.